If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, I'm Rob Attar, and this is the third History Extra podcast for August 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... My ambition is to write religion into the story of American national construction. That was Richard Carwardine on understanding American history. And so for for Vichy, this was a really important role uh, that it could take in terms of rounding up Jews and actively contributing to the Nazis' efforts towards the final solution. And that was David Lees on the involvement of the Vichy French regime in the Holocaust. This podcast comes to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. And we're also now available in a number of digital formats. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and you can get our iPad edition available from the Apple newsstand. To find out more information on the iPad edition, please visit historyextra.com forward slash iPad. And if you enjoy a bit of social media, then you can keep up to date with us and get in touch at facebook.com forward slash history extra and twitter.com forward slash history extra. Professor Richard Carwardine is president of Corpus Christi College, Oxford. He was previously Rhodes Professor of American History at Oxford. He's currently working on a project exploring religion and the construction of the American nation from the revolution to the civil war. The magazine's publisher, David Musgrove, caught up with him in his office at Corpus Christi to talk a little about his ideas on this subject. We're talking about a research project that you've you've been working on for some time. And and the basic contention, if I understand it right, please tell me if I I don't, is that the role of religion has been neglected somewhat in uh, in the story of the development of the American nation from 1770s up to 1860s. Is that about right? Yes, I wouldn't want to overstate that. I think what I would say is that religion, as read into American history by American historians looking at America from the period of, let's say, the first European settlements in the early 17th century through to the present day, those historians have seen religion playing a huge role in colonial times. When we get into the 20th century, somehow religion disappears from view. That is being, I think, corrected in the response to the events of the last 25 or 30 years where we see religion as a very powerful force in public life. 
even so, secular historians or historians of secular America have tended to compartmentalise the worlds of religion on the one hand and the worlds of politics and social order on the other. Mm. And my ambition, and I, I can't claim that this is absolutely new, but my ambition is to write religion into the story of American national construction from the revolution through to the civil war. It's not that there aren't fine studies of American religion in this era, but it seems to me that there is a, a place for a work that will fuse religion into the larger political and story, the political story of the creation of the American nation. And I think there are two ways in which that can be pursued. One is at a level of ideas religious ideas helping to shape an understanding of what America was and what it should be. And secondly, an institutional dimension with the churches, in particular the churches, but not exclusively the churches, because they had really quite elaborate philanthropic and humanitarian organisations that they fed into, to see how those institutions provide a structure within which Americans can see themselves as Americans at a time when the institutions of politics, the institutions of the state, the federal government, uh, are relatively weak. Uh, and Americans develop a sense of belonging to something bigger than their community thanks to, in part at least, the existence of churches which have national structures yeah. and associated bodies which also have a remit right across the nation. So is that, is that the essential underlying point, is that Americans uh, at this time, probably to this day, have a, an affinity to their state, not necessarily directly to, to the nation, whereas the church or religion brings them into a, into a bigger whole? I, I don't know whether that is still true. It certainly is a way of looking, the right way, I think, of looking at 19th century America, where the federal government remains really quite a limited force. There are, of course, exceptions to that. The period of the Civil War sees a growth in government authority, in fact, both in the Confederacy and in the Union. But many of those much of the apparatus of the, the federal government uh, is temporary during the, the mid-19th century Civil War era. Uh, it's only really with the advent of World War I and more particularly the crisis of the 1930s uh, depression and the need for government agencies to contend with uh, widespread distress. It's only then that we see the development of a national government structure which approximates to something similar to what you've had in Europe actually for significantly longer. In the 19th century I think Americans loyalties are lo local and state level uh, and only gradually become uh, loyalties to the nation. I think the Civil War has a huge role to play in that. It brings, certainly in the, the North, in the free states and the border slave states, Americans into armies that fight for the concept of the Union and are prepared to lay down their, Americans are prepared to lay down their lives for that. Um, so the concept of a larger America, of an America beyond the state, of course, um, it, you know, it would be foolish to say, to, to say that it didn't exist at the time of the revolution. Um, there clearly was a concept of America in the, in the era of the Constitution. The, the United States Constitution is based on the understanding that individually the states are weaker than the sum of their parts. Nonetheless, it 
it has been said that the uh, the early republic was, as it were, a roof without walls. There was a, a constitution providing the roof, but somehow the structure had yet uh, f fully to be built. And it, therefore the question has to be posed, who created that structure, what created that structure? And the answer is, of course, um, agencies of the individual states. But many of the loyalties that Americans felt, that the citizens of the United States and of the individual states felt, many of those loyalties are to voluntary bodies, to organizations which are not government agencies but are privately originating. And of these, the earliest national agencies were the, the churches, um, the Presbyterian, particularly the Protestant churches, the, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Methodists, the, these are all national bodies uh, and they draw into uh, not just the local church, they draw, the local, local churches draw into themselves uh, men and women who through their membership of that, those churches, uh, come to feel themselves to be part of a much larger network. Uh, so that when, for example, in the early 19th century, we see the development of a steam press that is producing a weekly newspaper for the Methodist Church, produced in New York, but circulating across the Union, you find subscribers to that newspaper writing in to say, it's wonderful to to learn about the activities of Methodists in other, part of other parts of the Union. It makes me see beyond my locality, whether that is the state of Georgia or the state of Virginia or the state of New Jersey. Uh, there's a sense that the churches give of, to individuals of belonging to something very much larger than their immediate uh, locality. Well, no doubt I'm being naive and ignorant here, but surely the, the thing about religion... America is that there are many churches it's not that yeah. there isn't a Church of England no. equivalent no. so uh, how does that if we're talking about creating national consciousness then isn't isn't the fact that there's so many churches it, go against that that's a very interesting point isn't it yes exactly so the reason why the United States uh, has no established church why there is a First Amendment which provides for a freedom of religion uh, is not because the founders were anti-religious or hostile to the, the place of religious morality in politics but because there were far too many churches um, that it, you simply could not privilege one church over another in the way in which happened in European confessional states. Uh, you had to recognise the, the simple proliferation uh, through the colonial period of uh, a whole range of churches. In any given colony, one church might be dominant, but in another colony, that church would be the subordinate so Congregationists would be strong in New England, the Anglicans in Virginia, Presbyterians in much of the, the, the back country. That sheer proliferation, that abundance, that pluralistic structure of religious life in the United States does indeed, as you say, make at one level for fractiousness, for contention, um, a good deal of indeed of uh, religious warfare taking place between churches as they compete for for souls in a, in a in a religious marketplace. It's often said that these preachers in the early republic were selling God. Uh, they needed to sell religion. They needed to acquire members of their churches if the churches were to survive financially since these are not state-supported churches. The fact is, however, that when you start looking at what these 
churches are preaching and when you start looking at what they say about the United States and the place of the United States within the, 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 the larger universe, within the, the, within the world community, uh, then what they're saying is that the United States has a, has a very special role. There is a, a common theme right across the, the churches of America's special place under providence of how the American nation has a mission to sustain civil and religious liberty uh, of a kind that Christ himself would have endorsed. Um, Americans seeing themselves as the, the working out of a primitive Christianity in the modern world, uh, a, a providential sense of mission. Uh, we often hear the term manifest destiny used of the United States in the 19th century. Um, that could mean straightforwardly territorial acquisition, America's destiny to spread across the continental, uh, the, North, the, the North American continent. But it also had a, a providential connotation, uh, divine connotation, that it was America's mission, not necessarily to, ex to expand territorially, but nonetheless to have a role to play in the development across the globe uh, as a model for democratic and republican government under God, because republicanism was the divine model, the, the Christian model. So, yes, you're absolutely right, there is a multiplicity, there, there are many, many churches, multiplicity of churches, which mean that there is often contention between them as they compete for souls, but what they are delivering in respect of an understanding of America's role in the world is one which is entirely, uh, I would say monolithic, but is really quite homogeneous, um, quite consistent from one denomination to, other, to another. Each denomination thinks it has the best route to righteousness, to the creation of a righteous nation. But there is nonetheless within each church a sense of, of the importance of America to the history of the world and to the history of Christianity. And how far does that, that God-given nation message go back? Is it, does it begin in the 1770s or earlier or, or later? It, it, it goes right back, doesn't it, to the, the founding. Certainly uh, in New England, uh, the, it's um, almost a, a cliché, a truism, to say that the early settlers in New England saw themselves as establishing a city on a hill, as uh, providing a beacon for a true religion, uh, across the world. Uh, these are refugees from European persecution. Uh, they come to the colonies, the, the early colonies, with a mission to set up a godly community which will provide an example to the world of, of how to order society in a way that uh, strengthens Christianity, that strengthens godliness, where politics and on the one hand, and church life on the other, are not separate domains, but are absolutely fused. Indeed, in the early colonies, you only had a say politically if you were a church member. So it goes right back to the, the roots of certainly the New England settlements, even if you can't claim that all of the early colonies in what became the United States were wholly godly and God-fearing. Um, that message, though, must have been rocked when we get up to the Civil War period, when you've got 
the, the, the two sides clashing and both sides presumably claiming divine authority. What, what happened there and how did, that, how did that play out? That's again a very good question and the, indeed it seems to me that you can only understand the civil war if you treat it as a sort of holy war. It wasn't a war about religion but it was a war about an issue, fundamentally the issue of slavery, an issue to which each side provided a, um, a, a moral lens. It, it looked at slavery, Southerners looked at slavery in a very different ethical fashion, and I'm speaking of course very broadly here, and dissenters no doubt, and certainly were dissenters, but broadly speaking Southerners saw slavery and defended slavery as an ethical, as a moral institution, at the same time that uh, many within the free states regarded the Gospels in particular, the Bible more generally, as a handbook for anti-slavery, uh, than the, the the, the golden rule of Christ's uh, message to do unto others as you would to uh, oneself, that that golden rule as applied to slavery meant that slavery was an unethical and immoral institution, certainly as it was practiced in the southern states. So, yes, um, two uh, sections of the United States in the 1840s and 1850s increasingly seeing the other as derelict, morally derelict. Southerners believing that they were the true upholders of the Gospels and of the Scriptures, which it is true on a literal interpretation, on a literal reading, do defend slavery. The, after all, the, uh, the, the fathers, the, uh, the patriarchs, the Old Testament patriarchs um, were slaveholders. Um, in the New Testament, Paul uh, um, tells the, the slave um, Philemon to return to his master. Slavery in the Roman world is seemingly accepted. So southerners could present themselves as true to the scriptures and the north as the home of heterodoxy, of infidelity, of all kinds of isms that uh, corroded and undermined the truth of the, of the Bible. At the same time, Northerners saw the South as the aberrant people in a world, not just in the northern United States, but in Europe too, where slavery was seen as archaic, as inhumane, as no longer defensible, and beyond the spirit, outside the spirit of the New Testament command to treat one's neighbour as oneself. So, yes, you're absolutely right that the, the, the gulf between North and South um, was a, a moral, a philosophical, an ethical gulf, uh, which was only resolved on the battlefield. Um, it led Southerners, Southern defeat led Southerners to ask the question, have we been mistaken in our belief that God was on our side in this struggle? Have we been misled? Have we misled ourselves in thinking that slavery was a scriptural and honourable institution? And the answer that many gave was that slavery itself was not wrong, but the way in which Southerners had sustained the institution had been ungodly, uh, had been 
unethical in breaking up families, in preventing slaves from reading and writing. If you prevent slaves from reading, you prevent them with the you deny them the tool with which they can then read the gospel for themselves. And, of course, the Protestant understanding of uh, the responsibility of the individual is that that individual has the responsibility to read the Bible for him or herself. So there was a, um, a, an argument which I think had wide currency in the Civil War Confederacy that as the South as the war went on, found itself more and more uh, under attack on the defensive and eventually uh, defeated on the battlefield, that this was a, a, a punishment, a punishment in the way that God had punished the Israelites of old, punishment of a chosen people, punishment of a, of a blessed people, uh, who had, because they were special, because they were blessed, had been in receipt of a particularly harsh punishment. Uh, because if, you're, if you are a blessed people, then you have an ob obligation to live to a higher standard and um, by higher standards uh, than those who are not so blessed. So after the Civil War, Southerners don't take the view that they have lost their standing in God's sight. What they and again I'm speaking very generally, what they, they see is that they remain a blessed people in God's sight, but that they have to make recompense um, for the, the follies of the past. The fact is, however, that the, that the nation that exists in 1865 is much closer to what you might call a Puritan or Yankee view, a northern view of what America should be, uh, than it was to the uh, antebellum, the pre-Civil War confederate view of what the, the nation would be. Slavery has been removed. It has been removed by force of arms, by a godly army, as the, the, the North would see it, by, by Christian soldiers who have taken to the battlefield to eliminate a curse from the, um, from the land. So in terms of the reconciliation following the war then, the religious reconciliation, how important was the idea of the South of, of, of a punishment? How important was that in creating reconciliation between the two sides? Uh, that's a good question and quite a difficult one to to answer. The 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 the, the South never gave up its sense of its own special place in divine favour. Mm -hmm. uh, the the so-called lost cause ideology, the ideolo ideology of the lost cause, uh, w was one which, uh, in which I think g guilt was interwoven with a continuing sense of southern superiority. And indeed that guilt becomes, I think, an ever-diminishing element uh, the further you get away from the civil war. There, were undoubtedly uh, Southerners before, during and after the Civil War who felt a guilt and a shame about slavery. Um, but that did not mean that Southerners post-war did not continue to see themselves as being a special part of the United States. 
crudely speaking, what happened after the Civil War is that the uh, that Washington and uh, the Republican Party and the North gets on with the business of uh, commerce, of uh, territorial expansion, moving into the West, uh, developing a, a free labour economy, no longer encumbered by the power, the political power of the, the old slave owners um, that had exercised disproportionate influence in Washington before 1861. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. That was Professor Richard Carwardine of Oxford University. Before we move on to our next interview, I'd like to tell you a little bit about a couple of lectures we're putting on at the British Academy over the next couple of months. On Thursday the 20th of September, Tracy Borman and Mark Morris will be discussing the Norman Conquest. Then, on Thursday the 18th of October... Lawrence Rees and Ashley Jackson will be considering two Second World War leaders, Hitler and Churchill. On both occasions, you'll have the chance to meet these distinguished speakers and to purchase signed copies of their books. Tickets are still available for both of these talks. Go to historyextra.com forward slash lectures for more details and to buy tickets. And magazine subscribers will save £5 on the ticket price. Last month witnessed the 70th anniversary of a major roundup of thousands of Jews who were ultimately deported to their deaths. It took place not in Poland or the occupied parts of the Soviet Union, but in France, still then enjoying a degree of autonomy under the Vichy regime. David Lees of the University of Warwick has been researching the story of this roundup, and so I spoke to him to find out more about the incident and its aftermath. What was the political situation in France in the summer of 1942? 
from June 1940, uh, France was divided into two, with the sort of northern two-thirds of the country, including Paris and uh, largely industrial areas, were under the control of the Nazis. So that area was occupied directly by the Nazi regime. Uh, in the sort of southern third of the country, largely rural area, uh, including the Mediterranean coast, uh, there was a sort of puppet regime known as the, the Vichy regime, uh, based in the spa town of Vichy. And uh, this particular government was led by Marshal Philippe Pétain, um, a former World War I uh, veteran who was appointed head of government and he effectively led a, a sort of authoritarian right-wing regime. So the situation in Ju uh, July 1942 was that France was run for the most part by this authoritarian government based at Vichy. Now obviously the, the autonomy of Vichy was limited largely to the southern third of the country directly occupied by the Vichy regime. Uh, however in principle many of the sort of civil servants and police figures in the occupied country, so the occupied part of the country, um, were, were directly under the control of Vichy. So Vichy did actually, did actually exercise some autonomy over the, the civil servants and police officers living, in, and living and working in the occupied zone. So Vichy had this, had this control, nominal control, over the occupied part of the country. Uh, and so the situation in July 1942 was that although in Paris the, uh, the Nazi occupiers governed for the most part, Vichy sort of had this control over police and civil servants. And I think that's quite important in terms of the, the later events that followed in July 1942. And so coming on to the Jewish population in France, what, what was their status at the time? Would it be similar to Jews in other um, Nazi-occupied countries? Uh, actually, it's, it's slightly different because uh, in the sort of Nazi-occupied zone of France, um, they fell directly under the, uh, under the Nazi occupiers. So therefore, they were treated with the same sort of standard as um, other Nazi-occupied countries, including, of course, Holland, uh, Denmark and so on. Uh, in the Vichy zone, it's quite interesting. In the Vichy zone, um, the Vichy regime made a distinction between French and foreign Jews. So Jews who were seen to have come into the country fairly recently from, say, the Eastern Europe or from Germany itself, fleeing the Nazis, were given a sort of special, sort of different treatment from French Jews who'd lived there for much longer. So what we have is a situation whereby there are two distinct groups of Jews in France during this period. Those which are considered to be French and those which are considered to be foreign. And foreign Jews were, as I say, given sort of a, a much harsher treatment by Vichy when compared to French Jews. And in, in this particular time, we have 90% of the French Jewish population is living in Paris. This includes both French and foreign Jews. And um, so when it came to, um, to later events in July 1942, the distinction between French and foreign, I think, was particularly important because the, the Nazi regime and indeed the Vichy regime decided to discriminate against the foreign as opposed to French Jews. Was this because Vichy was quite a nationalist regime, so to them it wasn't so much a racial ideology, it was, it was more the fact there were foreign Jews in the country? Absolutely, absolutely. There's, Vichy's anti-Semitism is kind of rife with various different contradictions. Um, we have, for example, the, the definition of a Jew according to Vichy law um, was that anybody who had two, three Jewish grandparents who was not married to a Jew was considered to be a Jew. And anybody with two Jewish grandparents, if also then married to a Jew, was considered to be Jewish. Now, what effectively this meant is if you were married to somebody who was also a Jew, and you had two Jewish grandparents, you were then automatically considered to be a Jew. Now, this was a much harsher definition than the Nazis themselves used, which I think is an important point to make. Um, whereas the the actual um, the foreign Jews in in were considered definitely to be said to be outsiders under Vichy law, but nevertheless the French Jews were subject to the same definition. 
Now, Vichy's anti-Semitism is, as you say, is absolutely right. It's, it's more kind of nationalistic and xenophobic than it is racial. However, the definition used was overtly racial, and indeed the Germans started using the same definition because it included a larger group of people. So when they wanted to kind of net wider groups of Jews in their in their roundups, they applied the stricter Vichy definition. So Vichy was certainly a nationalistic and conservative regime, which discriminated against outsiders. But equally, there was a discrimination against anybody who was considered to be Jewish per se. When did um, roundups of French Jews begin in France? Well, the, the first roundups began actually as early as 1940. Um, the, there was a series of camps in, across France where Spanish refugees from the Spanish Civil War, mostly Republican, you know, left-wing Republicans, uh, were held in, in the south of France and uh, indeed in, in, a, in the area around Orléans uh, in the north. And these camps were used to, in turn, a large number of foreign immigrants. So they were rounded up in, at that stage as early as 1940. Um, these, these sort of holding camps were then used to, to, to intern foreign Jews who were seen to be a sort of a bad influence on French society uh, after the fall of France in June 1940. Now, I think that's quite an important point to make because in June 1940, um, there were literally millions of, of French people on the roads, around six million people uh, on the roads of France. And these refugees fleeing from the north of France were considered to be a bad influence on the the sort of southern areas of France. Um, many of these refugees, it has to be noted, were indeed Jewish, and they were considered to have used sort of get, get gathered special treatment with their, obviously, the traditional um, anti-Semitic view that Jewish people were therefore more moneyed, more rich than ordinary non-Jewish people, uh, and um, and so consequently they, there was a, a sort of heavy. Um, heavy bias placed on the role of Jews in the in the fleeing of civilians and indeed in defeat. So foreign Jews in, in the south were rounded up as early as 1940. Um, but what we see is an increasing number of roundups uh, towards 1942. Um, because when Vichy was first created in 1940 as a government, it was significantly less uh, discriminatory than it in later years. And actually it became increasingly repression, uh, repressionary and um, reactionary um, as, as time went on. So we see the sort of first real roundups emerge, uh, including large number of people in, in 1942. And where was the impetus coming from behind these roundups? Is this coming from Nazi Germany or is it coming from Vichy France? It's uh, a very good point to make. Um, Vichy was was at the at the forefront of these ideas. Um, Vichy was determined to to have a, a, a particular place in the new European order, which was to be instigated by the Nazis. And so for, for Vichy, this was a really important role uh, that it could take in terms of rounding up Jews and actively contributing to the Nazis' efforts towards the final solution. So Vichy was really at the, at the forefront of the, of the roundups. And indeed, the impetus for the roundups comes from Vichy, uh, in particular from the Prime Minister Pierre Laval, um, who was a notorious anti-Semite anyway, but he was also very committed to this idea of collaboration with the Germans. So he was somebody who really was behind the idea of the roundups and although the nazis had issued a target and i use the term very loosely but that's that's the term they use a, tar a target of uh, 40,000 jews to be to be handed over to the nazis in 1942 um this was actually um this was actually taken on board by vichy who were determined to make sure this was entirely made up of foreign jews so vichy went out of its way to actually round up these these people and indeed vichy had instigated a system under the third well that inherited from the Third Republic, whereby it recorded the details of Jews living in, in across France and created sort of identity cards, which were used to then round up people living in Paris. 
Germany, obviously, as we know, later in other parts of Europe wanted the, the total annihilation of all Jewish populations. But it seems like in France they weren't actually requesting that at this point. Well, that's absolutely true. I think um, the with Vichy, Vichy, didn't, Vichy was never really sure what was going to happen with this Jewish population. Really, Vichy wanted to rid itself, to rid France of the Jewish influence, its perceived Jewish influence on French society. Um, and so consequently, the idea of, of getting rid of these Jews, uh, which was ultimately what the aim was, um, was motivated really by this sort of xenophobic uh, determination to rid France of any foreign influences. And at that stage, Vichy wasn't, and, and probably never really was entirely sure as to what was happening with these Jews uh, who were being rounded up. In fact, when we look back to 1940, uh, the Nazis actually ensured that any Jews who had left the occupied zone during the, the mass exodus from the north uh, were actually maintained in the south because the Nazis wanted to make sure that their zone of occupation was free of any Jewish influence. So they actually kept, they actually maintained that Jews were, were to stay in the Vichy zone, which obviously Vichy was, was devastated about. Uh, Vichy, the last thing Vichy wanted really was, was a, a group of Jewish people living in its, its own backyard. So when the time came to, to deport these particular Jewish people, uh, Vichy was you know, really relished the task. So ultimately, I don't think there was a real, I don't think Vichy ever really questioned what was going to happen to these Jews in terms of this extermination idea, but really it wanted to sort of preserve France from this perceived Jewish influence. Clearly, we now know that, that a lot of these Jews were, were sent to their deaths afterwards, but from what you're saying, it seems like maybe Vichy France wasn't aware of that. Do we have any idea of what they thought might have happened to these Jews? Yeah, so that's a, I think that's a very interesting point, Robert. I think um, in terms of the in terms of the Vichy leadership, there was always an element of doubt, and I think we have a sort of a continuous element of doubt here uh, in terms of whether the, the Vichy leadership or indeed the leadership of other wartime countries uh, knew the exact fate of the Jews during this period. Um, Pierre Laval was was actually sort of a person who refused to ask any questions. He was sort of a man who who carried out actions first and then asked questions later. So he he sort of maintained that really um, he wasn't concerned with the ultimate fate of these Jews. Um, he, he knew, for example, that, as he said, the fate was not going to be particularly nice, uh, but he also knew uh, that he didn't really need to know too much information because that might compromise his idea of this, you know, sort of an independent, autonomous French government. If, if French people as a whole believed that Vichy was deporting Jews to their, to their deaths, ultimately, then there was sure to be a public uh, outcry at this. So consequently, he didn't really ask very much about what was happening to them, uh, nor indeed did a, a fellow called René Bousquet, who was the uh, prefect of police in Paris at the time, who was very much actively involved in negotiations with the Nazis over the number of Jews who were to be rounded up and exact time for the roundup. Um, so, so you're absolutely right in saying that the, the Vichy leadership didn't really question what was happening, although at one stage Vichy in 1940 actually proposed sending Jews to Madagascar um, as a proposed place to sort of intern these, these Jews um, but ultimately this was vetoed because it was deemed to be too expensive so they were convinced there was going to be a kind of equivalent Madagascar in the east somewhere where these Jews would be held but never really asked any more than that and um, so coming on to this particular weekend in July 1942 what, what actually happened then? Okay, well, on, on the sort of 16th and 17th of July, um, some 12,884 Jews were rounded up um, by French police, entirely by French police. Um, the, German, the German military authorities had some minimal involvement in terms of supervising the roundups, but actually the French police were really at the forefront of the roundups. Um, and they, based upon the identity cards of, of Jews living in Paris and living in the occupied zone, um, effectively went round and, and rounded up as many Jews as they could possibly find. Now, I think 
think it's worth noting that the initial target was, was some 24,000 um, Jews to, to be rounded up, but actually they only succeeded in rounding up 12,884. Um, so it's obviously a significant number, but nevertheless less than originally intended. Now, what happened actually was was the once the Jews had been arrested in their own homes, they were taken to various different camps to be held. Uh, now, any families who were rounded up were taken directly to uh, the Velodrome d'Hiver, which was the uh, winter velodrome at the time, um, and this was quite a big, obviously, big cycling stadium. Um, really no real accommodation there apart from naturally the sides of the velodrome and indeed the stands um, and this is where these families were forced to live for an entire five days uh, in fact some of them were forced to live there up to seven days in very insanitary and actually really quite harsh cramped conditions so families were taken to the velodrome d'hiver whereas the um individual sort of either childless couples or single men and women were taken to a holding camp at Drancy which was originally intended for social housing was actually pressed into service as a kind of transit camp and these people were very quickly deported to Auschwitz from from Drancy. Now the fate of the of the families in, in the Vellum Divers is quite important because they as I say they lived there some of them for up to seven days in very terrible terrible conditions with uh, very little access to food and drink and um, the toilet facilities there were really poor and um, they were taking these families after after a period of up to seven days to camps in the Orléans region and they were held there for again some of them as, as late as August 1942 before then being deported themselves to Auschwitz and and really the fate of these people is, is really quite terrible because when we think of the sheer number of people who were rounded up so 12,884 um, many of them were actually children and I think it's worth saying that none of the children survived so 4,051 children were actually killed in the death camps when the Jews were rounded up, what were they told about what was happening to them? Did they have any inkling of their fate at all? Not really, no. They were told they would be sent to... They were certainly being uh, interned in camps within France. They didn't really know that they would be deported to the east, and in particular to Auschwitz and the death camps. Uh, that wasn't made clear at the time at all. Uh, indeed, their fate was actually covered up by by Vichy and, and indeed by the German uh, occupiers who were who were overall supervising the, the roundup, um, they had no inkling as to what was what was to happen to them. And indeed, the, um, there's a tragic tale actually where the the Jewish children made up a name for where they might be going, which is called Pichipoi, which is kind of made up um, word to describe this mythical place where they might actually end up going to. Um, such was the nature of the of the situation that these people had absolutely no idea where they would end up, which I think is quite tragic, really. Now, you mentioned quite a number of the French uh, Vichy leadership collaborated quite willingly in this, and, and clearly some of the police would have had to do that too. But were there were there French people who challenged or opposed what was going on? There were, yes. Um, as I say, the actual number of people rounded up was much lower than the original target, and I think this has quite a lot to do with the actions of uh, resistance groups, and indeed with just just people who were working for the French police and who decided to tip off their friends or neighbours who happened to be Jews. So we see a large number. I mean, you know, roughly half of the original target managed to escape the roundups, which I think is really quite important. Um, so these people were either tipped off by, as I say, by people who were working for the French police, who just happened to mention that they. These, these arrests will be coming fairly soon. Um, all the French resistance actually printed tracks to warn people that this might happen. And the resistance often had people working within the French police or with the civil servants, and they did warn people that this might actually be happening. But many people simply assumed that the French would never actually perform this kind of roundup, because under the French Republican tradition, uh, anybody could live in France regardless of religion or, you know, 
any political persuasion. They were they were basically part of the French society. So they were convinced, many of these people, that this would never happen to them and consequently decided to stay where they were, which obviously proved to be fatal. Were these events um, covered in the media at all? Well, actually, no. In fact, the, the, the sort of media coverage at the time was, was really quite staggering in its sort of overlooking of these events. And um, the, the, the French newspapers at the time, even those in the Vichy zone, uh, effectively just completely ignore the fact that these had taken place at all. Um, so we have the very well-known Le Figaro, which of course is one of the most famous French newspapers uh, in the world, very well-known across the world, um, completely glossed over the fact that these events had taken place. And it published sort of scheme, uh, published other, other articles at the time, uh, including uh, articles on Vichy's pro-work policies, which were effectively aimed at sending people to young people to work in Germany. And I think that's quite an important point, because rather than looking at this negative side of collaboration in terms of the roundups of the Jews. It was actually focusing on a very positive spin as far as Vichy was concerned, which was sending French people to work in Germany for the German work effort. And this was this was something that was promoted indeed in, in French um, audiovisual propaganda as well. So things like the uh, the weekly Vichy newsreel uh, completely overlooked the roundups and instead concentrated on things like a cycling race on the Mediterranean coast and a forest fire in Marseille. You know, this was completely nothing to do with the roundups whatsoever. Yet this was the sort of side of things that Vichy wanted to promote at this time. You mentioned some of the newspapers in, in those days. Were they in any way independent or were they all being run by Vichy? Effectively run by Vichy, that's right. Um, they had very strict instructions in terms of their content. And so what we see is the sort of front page of Le Figaro, for example, is exactly the same as many other newspapers in the Vichy zone. So it's a very tight control of, of the media. So this, this is obviously a really major roundup. Did any further roundups happen after this point? Absolutely. We have a, a series then of, of roundups which actually take place in the Vichy zone. Um, and Vichy maintained this position that rather than uh, deporting French Jews, uh, it would much rather prefer to round up uh, foreign Jews. So consequently, the roundups in the unoccupied zone in August 1942 were limited really to people from, as I say, from, from, the Eastern, from Eastern Europe or indeed from Germany, who were rounded up in August 1942. They had a very similar fate to the people rounded up in the Rafle du Vedive. Uh, they were actually sent to, um, to camps again in Orléans or in the unoccupied zone, places like the Camp de Gurs, which is um, in the Spanish border. Um, they were then taken directly to, to Dorancy, the transit camp, and then indeed taken to Auschwitz. So these roundups continued into 1942 and beyond. But what's interesting is after, after November 1942, the Vichy zone is occupied by the Nazis. So the Nazis are then much much easier, it's much easier for the Nazis to then round up um, French and foreign Jews while they're there. So Vichy's autonomy after November 1942 slips entirely away. So the Nazis are then able to round up as many Jews as they possibly want in that period. But we do see, however, that there's a kind of um, a difference in terms of the organisation of the roundups during that period. So July 1942, this particular roundup on 16th of July, was very well executed and very well planned. But in the, the later roundups, the Nazis were effectively working on their own because the French police at this, at this point decided that they only wanted to help out not to organize these things and so we end up with people with the nazis effectively going around trying to find jews wherever they can and there's an, actually a, a testimony in nice which records the gestapo quite literally cruising the streets trying to find as many jews as they possibly could uh, without really much success and indeed the numbers deported in 1943 and 1944 are considerably lower than those deported in 1942.
So by this point, were the French people now more on the side of the Jews in the sense that they were also occupied and they weren't as willing collaborators? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, following, the, following the roundups in July 1942, in fact, public opinion begins to turn against this idea of discrimination. So we have, before this point, we have a kind of a, a fairly a fairly quite ingrained anti-Semitism in, in many people in France, which again is, is xenophobic as opposed to racial anti-Semitism. So these people were actually, many French people living in, in both zones of France, were fairly ambivalent in terms of the fate of the Jews at this point. But after the roundups, when they see such large numbers of people being deported, and indeed this is actually, this, this sort of roundup is recorded through the BBC, who, who uh, broadcast back to France, and actually record that this roundup took place. Um, so French people are becoming increasingly aware of the fact that this, this roundup took place, and therefore turn against this discrimination. And what we see is actually a, an increasing sort of resistance really, whether it's mental or physical resistance, against the policies of the occupier and against Vichy's policies. And so consequently they, are, they do sort of identify themselves much more with, with the Jewish population than before. And over the course of the war, what, what proportion of French Jews were deported and how many people ended up surviving in France? Absolutely. Well, we have we have an exact figure in terms of the number of Jews deported, um, thanks to the work of the American historian Robert Paxton, uh, and indeed the French historian Serge Klaasfeld, who was, who was himself, uh, his family were deported to Auschwitz. Um, the figure deported in terms of the total number of deportations, deportations was 76,000 Jews, which is a, obviously a huge number, um, of whom only 2,051 returned. So a considerable number of Jews. I think it made up roughly 70% of the Jewish population in France, which was deported. But some obviously did survive because, I mean, France still has quite a large Jewish population to this day. Indeed. So what happened, I mean, in terms of the, the, the figure I gave you earlier, the, the percentage that related really to the foreign number of foreign Jews as opposed to French Jews, what we find is that many French Jews were actually quite well connected and were so therefore able to sort of escape the roundups more, much more easily than foreign Jews who often were living in France without any family or, or indeed many friends. Um, so they... In terms of French Jews, a large French population remained in France. I'm not saying you know, it's not, it wasn't the entire French Jewish population, but nevertheless, many were able to survive. Um, we did. What happened really is, is that those who returned from the roundups were then joined by those who had fled abroad, so those who fled to Britain or to America uh, before the Nazis occupied. And so consequently, they were able to build up the Jewish population in France sort of from scratch really after that. And the participants, especially the, the ones from France, were any of them punished for their role in these incidents? That's a very interesting question, actually. Um, the sort of memory of, of the Vichy period continues to this day. Um, and actually, the fact of the matter is that many of these people were not punished whatsoever. Um, René Brusquet, for example, who was the head of police in, in the Paris region, uh, actually went on to have a very successful career as an administrator in the French government. Um, and he, he was actually a very close friend of President Mitterrand, um, but he was somewhat suspiciously uh, executed in 1992 by a lone gunman. Uh, and the suspicion was that some, he was about to sort of spill the beans in terms of Mitterrand's involvement in the Vichy regime. Um, so Bousquet, as I say, carried on his life as normal. Um, Pierre Leval was, was uh, imprisoned and was actually executed um, after the war. So he was punished for his role. But many of the ordinary French policemen who were working on the day of the Hafle de Veldiv continued in their roles. Many, many became sort of last-minute resistance um, in the, the final days of the occupation. In August 1944, when there was a big uh, insurrection in Paris, many of these people became sort of last-minute resistors um, and went 
went over to the side of the resistance and therefore they were able to go back into their roles as French policemen uh, following this, this insurrection. But actually what we find is many of these French policemen were, were continuing working as late as 1961. And in 1961, there was I think it's worth, worth noting that there was a, a massive, effectively, uh, execution really of, of uh, ordinary uh, innocent Algerian civilians who were on a demonstration in Paris at that time. And um, on this particular day, in, in October 1961, many of the French policemen who were involved in, in interning or indeed killing these Algerian civilians were had taken part in the in the Hafle de Vedive. So there's a big continuity in terms of these people's lives. It, they actually managed to carry on their lives almost as normal. And this this is the case really for many administrators and sort of ordinary functionaries in, in the Vichy regime as a whole. They were able to carry on their lives more or less as normal. Why was this? Why didn't these people receive greater punishment for what, what they'd done? Well, I think partly this was because of um, de Gaulle himself, General de Gaulle, who, who had a really important role to play in terms of the, um, the mythology of, of the occupation years following the occupation. Um, so when de Gaulle returned to Paris in August 1944, uh, he made a famous speech in which he basically said that everybody in France had, had resisted, you know. Um, France had continued to resist, uh, he had never surrendered, and, and the Vichy regime was effectively illegal and therefore wasn't considered to be part of France. It wasn't a real French um, government. But we actually know this to be completely untrue because Vichy was created through a democratic process. Um, so de Gaulle created this myth around, around France during occupation which effectively said, Everybody was resistant, everybody resisted, um, and therefore, you know, we can carry on our lives as normal. So the role of people working for Vichy, or indeed with the Germans, was glossed over at this point. And this stayed in French memory for many, many years. Um, in fact, it was only really with the publication of Robert Paxton's book in 1972 that this, this myth was burst open, because Paxton went to the uh, French and German archives and realised, sorry, German and American archives, and realised that the, the role of Vichy was much more was much more strict and much more involved in terms of the deportation of Jews, for example, than was previously thought the case. So Vichy was really actually quite an active uh, power in terms of its involvement with the Jews, in terms of its deportation of the Jews, than anyone had thought previously. And this was largely to, to, to do with de Gaulle's myth of la France résistante. And now, as we've passed the 70th anniversary of these events, do you think France has yet come to terms with this aspect of its history? I think it's still very gradually coming to terms with the the uh, sort of memory of this period, indeed the the memory of the occupation years. Um, we we know, for example, that François Hollande, the new president, uh, made a speech on Sunday in which he basically said, you know, this was this isn't just the history of the Jews in France. This is the history of France, and we should acknowledge that. So Hollande and, and the kind of the and the government and indeed President Chirac in 1995 acknowledged that this was very much the, the fault of the French nation. Um, however, I think in terms of ordinary French people, I think this is, is still something which is very hard to to, read, to come to terms with. Because, I mean, this is a real, this is a collaboration on a huge scale. You know, deporting 12,884 Jews over two days is, is a, a staggering uh, feat, really, by anyone's standards. So the fact that they actually did this um, under no pressure from the Germans, really, um, I think is still a very bitter pill to swallow. That was David Lees, a researcher in the Department of French Studies at the University of Warwick. And that's about it for this week's episode. We shall return next week when we'll be discussing an ancient Greek geographer whose influence still lasts today. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find blogs, quizzes, galleries, TV roundups and more. And don't forget you can find our new digital editions available on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand. 
The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. <laughs>